you know, there's times where you talk about topics that you believe will be controversial and people sort of shrug their shoulders and, you know, it doesn't seem to be anything that got under anyone's skin and you think, okay. Um, and then there's other times where you talk about certain things that you don't expect much and it creates firestorms, right? Uh, just become something that clearly people have strong feelings about um, and uh, strong opinions about and creates all kinds of heated debates might be a nice way of saying it, I guess. Uh, tonight's topic is one that I think for a lot of people is probably one that um, I find people get pretty defensive over. And... Uh, <clears throat> And that is what I would term the therapeutic gospel, the therapeutic gospel. And when we talk about what this idea of the therapeutic gospel, which we'll sort of try to unpack tonight, um, we should be reminded that the line sometimes between truth and error can be blurry and can be subtle. <laughs> Ideas that in some sense can be good or okay can cross that line into territory that can become sinful or can become really detrimental to faith and to the truth of the gospel. And we're going to talk about some things tonight that on a certain level we could say, well, that, is that really bad? And maybe on a certain level, there's a way to kind of hold to some of those perspectives and it not be unhealthy or detrimental to your Christian faith. But there's certainly the ability for us to sort of transition into territory where now we really have sort of abandoned scriptural teaching in our perspective on those things. And so, anyways, all that to say, uh, I want you to know tonight as we broach the subject and as those of you who may be listening online, uh, that I realize that the things we'll talk about tonight are things that some of you may be quick to go, but hold on, wait a second. Maybe this, maybe this. Absolutely. Absolutely. My desire tonight is simply for us to maybe look at the other side of the coin to some things that I believe have become very pervasive, not only in the broader culture, but even within the church, that I think actually damage our understanding of the gospel properly, okay? And I think actually when we adhere to these things, we can find ourselves in a position where we really maybe have embraced a false gospel, a false expectation of what the gospel is, of what God has come to do. And so um, all that to say, just bear with me, hear me out, um, take some things away for you to sort of chew on tonight. If at first, as you hear these things, you find yourself maybe a bit skeptical. About 15 years ago, there was a massive study that was done by a gentleman by the name of Christian Smith. And Christian Smith did this huge study on that took years to conduct and to sort of like collect data and draw some conclusions about but it was about religion in america so it asked people questions about what they really believed i believe he was doing this particular study through the university of north carolina at the time he eventually published a book on all of this but it was very very uh impactful, it, was, it became very popular and well-known. And basically what Christian Smith concluded from all of the data that he collected in his research and through this study was that the beliefs 
of people in America, and again, this could be people who identify as Christian or any number of things, um, or non-Christian, so it's not like this is the belief system of people who don't believe in God. This is just sort of the pervasive belief system of those who live in America today was what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. That when we really dig down into what people actually believe, what he, he coined this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic, be nice or good. Therapeutic, feel good about yourself. Deism, God is sort of out there. He's probably not close enough and paying attention enough to really be focused on everything you do. He's sort of detached, but he's out there. Okay? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be good. Be nice. Moralism. Therapeutic. Feel good about yourself. Be happy. Deism. God is there, but he's sort of detached. He's probably not real focused on and paying attention to everything that's going on down here. But really, when it came down to it, that's what people really believed. It was a very very popular study, um, and it was very revealing. Um, and it certainly had something to say for not just the way the broader culture believed, but even many of those who identified as an evangelical Christian. That really, at the root, people who identified as Christians, who attended evangelical Christian churches, uh, really, underneath all of it, these were the things they actually believed moralistic therapeutic deism. So using that as a foundation for tonight, I want to talk about just one element of that, and that is the therapeutic, okay? Sort of a therapeutic gospel, so to speak. And I want to talk about, I guess, three tenets or three aspects of this gospel um, and this sort of system of thought, perspective on life, you could say, uh, this is not exhaustive, but I hope that it will help lay a foundation for maybe understanding this sort of perspective and, um, and hopefully also how the Bible would respond to it. So here's number one, if you're taking notes. The therapeutic gospel has a focus on self-esteem or self-worth. A focus on self-esteem or self-worth. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to be loved for who we are, we want to feel validated. This is common among many today. Let me read you some quotes from some famous cultural voices out there in the world today. These, these things should resonate. We hear these messages around us all the time, quite frankly, even from many people who write books that you can buy in Mardell. Know your worth. Know the difference between what you're getting and what you deserve. Accept yourself. Love yourself. Keep moving forward. If you want to fly, you have to give up what weighs you down. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Here's one. You are strong, blessed, healthy, redeemed. You are God's masterpiece. Here's a final phrase. I hear this a lot. I see this on Christian t-shirts. I see this amongst many who identify as Christians. This phrase, it's short, it's brief, but it captures the heart of this focus on self-esteem. 
You are enough. You are enough. These kinds of ideas sort of permeate our culture and even permeate much of church culture. Now, are those ideas bad? Is the intent behind that message something that we could say aligns with Scripture? Or is it something that doesn't? And to be fair, we might be able to look at some of those things and say, you are strong, blessed, healthy, redeemed, you are God's masterpiece. Maybe we could read that in the context of in Christ, we are all those things. So maybe we could say, okay, yeah, in Christ, we can understand that those things can be true about me. Does the Bible teach we have worth? Teach we have worth? Absolutely. The Bible says as those made in the image of God, that we have dignity, that we have value, that we are to respect and treasure and hold life as something that is of great value and sacred, to protect it, to preserve it. Sure, we would agree with all those things. I'll tell you why I think that's different from what these things are saying in just a moment. But nevertheless, <clears throat> what do we do with a statement like, you are enough? I'll be honest with you. I can't think of a single context in scripture in which that's a biblical message. In which that's a biblical message. By the way, let me throw this out too. <clears throat> in this focus on self-esteem, what we see here, the obstacle, so to speak, that needs to be overcome is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation, you could say negativity, you could even throw that in. That's the obstacle, so to speak, that needs to be overcome. And so how do we do that? We do that by promoting greater self-esteem, greater self-worth. I believe there's a fundamental difference between self-worth, the idea you are enough, so to speak, and a clear sense of biblical identity. The Bible certainly tells us that we should find a sense of identity <laughs> and that God has given us that. In fact, I would argue that maybe the central point of much of Paul's theology in his 13 letters is be who you are. Be who you are. This is who you are in Christ. Now be that. Identity is a fundamental question that's important for all of us, and it's certainly important for us as Christians if we're to live and walk well in God's design for us. So finding a strong sense of biblical identity in who God has made us, in how he has gifted us, in who we are in Christ, that is a value and something that we should put a high value on. But bottom line is, does the Bible teach that you are enough in and of yourself? Not as I see it. The Bible seems to say that you are not all right in and of yourself. That you are far from enough on your own. <laughs> that you have come up short and you are in need of serious assistance from someone outside of yourself. That seems to be the biblical message. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The wage of that sin is death. Our works will never be sufficient to bring us to position to please God in such a way that he should accept us into right relationship with him in a way that satisfies his justice. But those are simply not true. So, 
this focus on self-esteem, this focus on self-worth, is there value to having a good, strong sense of biblical identity? Yes. But the therapeutic gospel says happiness is found in feeling good about yourself. Does that necessarily mean it's in the context of who Christ is in you? Not necessarily. Which leads into point number two. First, we see a focus on self-esteem or, or self-worth. Second, we see a focus on self-empowerment or self-help. Self-empowerment or self-help. We want to be successful. We want to be fulfilled. We want to feel significant that we matter. We want to accomplish things. Sure, are those things wrong in and of themselves? Of course not. But, again, this gospel of what are we capable of accomplishing? The obstacle here, I would say, within the context of sort of this therapeutic gospel, is fear. You know, that is a, my wife is probably cringing as I bring this up, because we talk about this all the time, and she gives me good pushback in some ways uh, on this. Um, but fear is this word that has become used so much in the context of sort of Christian culture today. It's in our songs, it's in the books we write, like it's talked about a lot. And I'll be honest with you, there is something a little bit bizarre to me about a culture, a society, a Christian culture that when we look from a global perspective, lives in what is in large part the freest, most affluent, <laughs> and most comfortable society in the world, singing about fear all the time. What are we afraid of? What is it that's going on that we're finding so much fear about? It's a little bit strange to me. It makes me ask the question, what are we afraid of, and why do we keep talking about this? Now, I think reality is most of us aren't afraid of whether or not we will eat this week. That is a great provision from the Lord. There are many places in the world, even today, in fact, there's more places than not where people don't know for sure they will eat tomorrow, that they can feed their children tomorrow. America is, in large part, not that kind of place. Things have been going on that are very interesting, many of them very disturbing in our own country when it comes to the role and influence of government <laughs> here in our country. Nevertheless, we are still not at a place in this country at this moment where most of us, don't say all of us, most of us are worried that the government may break into our house tonight and drag us into prison for no reason. Do we fear that? Do we fear that because, even because we are Christians, that that would happen to us? By and large, no. There are places around the world where people are afraid of that right now. We live affluent, comfortable, easy lives when we look across the landscape of human civilization around the globe. So what are we afraid of? Well, in large part, a lot of things that are probably going on within our own psyche, within our own mind, in our own heart. Maybe we're afraid of failure. Maybe we're afraid of rejection. 
Maybe we have some genuine fears of things happening to us. Maybe some of those are irrational, but we still struggle with some of those fears. Doesn't mean those fears aren't real. So it's not to say that there isn't a place for people having genuine fears. But again, why do we talk about this so much? I believe one of the reasons we talk about it so much is because it fits under the umbrella of a therapeutic perspective on life. Where in the midst of this self-help, self-empowerment gospel, fear is this obstacle to us being to accomplish the things we want to accomplish in life. And really experiencing and finding the success and the happiness that we're longing for. So, how do we get happy? How do we find the good life? Focus on feeling good about ourselves, self-esteem. Focus on self-empowerment, rising above this obstacle of fear. Let me read you some quotes. All of these are from someone who would identify as a biblical preacher. Not that I would identify them as a biblical preacher. I don't say that lightly. God didn't create you to be average. You have greatness in you. The question is, how do we get it out? The world you see is created by what you focus on. It's never too late to adjust your lens. Nobody but you has to believe in your dreams to make them a reality. And we could go on and on and on about all the self-help and self-empowerment message that permeates the world around us. Calling us to rise up. To find inside of us that which will make us happy and help us to accomplish something meaningful in life. Well, is that biblical? Again, does God call us to dreams and to accomplishing things with vision that maybe we haven't ever seen or someone else hasn't done? Sure, I think God does all that. But one of the questions that I find myself regularly asking for myself and and regularly asking and praying about as it relates to the church is, do we need, do I need the help of the Holy Spirit to do this or not? Listen, we can do a lot of things as Christians and not need God's help to do it. Be convinced that maybe it's God's will but, and not need God to do it. You can grow a church. I use that word church loosely. You can grow a group of people. You can get people in the building. You can keep people in the building and God not be in that. Look at Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. When Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea, he says a lot of things. It's such a rich text. But one of the things he says there at the end, after basically telling listen, you guys think you are a lot of things that you are not. You think you're rich, you're poor. You think you're good, you're not. (laughs) You think you can see, you're blind. That's a great word and a great reminder that just because you think you're in a good place doesn't necessarily guarantee that you are in a good place. You could be wrong. You could be deceived. The church at Laodicea was deceived. They thought they were doing really well. Jesus had other things to say. But what it says right there at the end is Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And I'm waiting for you to come and let me in. And if you will let me in, I will come and I will eat with you. Now, That passage is not the same as Jesus in the gospel where he says, ask um, and you shall have, seek and you shall find, knock and the door will be open to you. That's sort of a call 
to evangelism, so to speak, called to receiving Christ. This is not that. This is Jesus saying, you guys are in there doing church and I'm outside. You gonna let me in? What a sobering word from Jesus to that church. We can do things and convince ourselves that this is what God wants. God's in the middle of all of it, and he's not a part of it at all. So a lot of times I think we convince ourselves that, you know, that God may have done that. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm constantly challenged to ask that question in my own life. Did you need the Holy Spirit to do that, or could you have done that in your own power, Josh? Listen, by the way, here's another great example of that. Listen, people get through hard times all the time that hate Jesus. They get through it, right? You're not doing anything distinctly Christian by getting through something hard. You are doing something distinctly Christian when you get through something hard and it deepens your love for God and your heart is filled with joy in the midst of it. You're going to need the Spirit of God for that, amen? Anybody can get through hard stuff. Getting through hard stuff is not distinctly Christian. You don't need God necessarily for that. People do it with God all the time. How much of the things that we sort of convince ourselves, like God is in this, God is behind this. No, this is a gospel of self-empowerment. This is a gospel of you finding within yourself what you need to rise up and accomplish all the things that you really want to accomplish in life. And the message is one that really doesn't call on you to seek God for help as much as for you to find within yourself (laughs) the power to accomplish it. focus on self-help empowerment does the message require god his spirit and his empowerment for us to accomplish it or is it something we can do on our own i think it also begs the question so to speak of just what success looks like right i think part of it is we are shooting for something we feel like is worth attaining in life But a lot of times, that's probably sort of a worldly perspective on what success is, right? I mean, is being unique, being someone who isn't average, I mean, is, is that what God's biggest concern is for you? I don't know. I think God is glorified in people who do the ordinary with deep commitment. And they grind. Talk about that again here in a minute. I think sometimes our perspective on real success is, I think, off. Dreams, goals. I remember when I was doing college ministry at USAO a while ago, I was invited to do the baccalaureate for the Ninnekaw High School at First Baptist Church in Ninnekaw. And I went in there, and I basically said, forget all your dreams. Give them away. Get over it. Like, stop pursuing your dreams and start pursuing God's dreams for you. I don't know that I communicated it very well. I never got asked back. I probably didn't deserve to come back, to be honest with you. Um, 
But I'm convinced the message, when communicated appropriately, is sound. I feel like over the course of my life, I'm learning more and more and more. And the plans I have and the plans God has for me are oftentimes not the same thing. Oftentimes not the same thing. This doesn't mean that God doesn't want to use people to make an impact, to make a difference, or even to do things that maybe someone else hasn't done. But what what does success look like to God? What does success look like to him? I think success looks a lot different to God than it might look to us. And what he may want us to accomplish may be a lot different than what we may want to accomplish. Here's number three. Kind of leads well into number three. Focus on self-gratification. So, therapeutic gospel, we see these tenets. First, we see that to be happy, we need to focus on our self-worth or self-esteem. Second, we need to focus on self-empowerment. We need to rise above our fear. And third, we see this focus on self-gratification. We live in a world and a culture that wants to be entertained. We want to feel excitement. We want to feel a sense of adventure. The world we live in in technology has not done us a whole lot of good service in this regard because it allows people to paint pictures of life via things like social media that are just snapshots. Just snapshots into those exciting moments and to give this picture, this image that, man, look at that life someone's living. The obstacle here is boredom. The obstacle is boredom. Let me read you a few quotes. Jobs fill your pockets, but adventures fill your soul. Again, all people who identify as Christian authors speaking these things, only those who risk going too far can possibly find how far they can go. If happiness is the goal, and it should be, then adventures should be our priority. Don't don't die without embracing the daring adventure your life was meant to be. Excitement. Adventure. So much out there. Now, is all that necessarily wrong again? No, not necessarily. But is this a part of the perspective that shapes the way that we live and also the way that we think about our faith? I remember watching, I didn't watch the whole movie, I watched just the beginning of it, I couldn't watch the rest of it, but I remember reading bits of the script as well. It was a movie that came out about 10 years ago, and it was based on the memoirs of a person, and it was a true story, and it was called Eat, Pray, Love. Julia Roberts plays the wife, and the beginning of the movie is this married couple, and Julia Roberts is the wife, and she's in her 30s, and she basically comes to the conclusion that Her life is just empty. She's unhappy. And she decides to leave her husband. He hasn't been unfaithful. He hasn't been abusive. He hasn't undermined their marriage. But she walks away from it. She walks away from the job. 
She walks away from their home. She walks away from him. Go out on an adventure and find something worth living for. Now, on one side, I would commend the message that those things don't ultimately satisfy, right? For sure. But she abandons her husband. She leaves. She travels to Italy. She travels to India. She travels to Indonesia. She's out on an adventure looking for some excitement, looking for something that's rewarding and fulfilling in life to get her out of the monotony and the boredom and the rat race of what she had experienced up to that point. Grieved me to watch that. Grieved me to watch someone abandon their marriage for a reason like that. Why? Why would someone do something like that? Again, because life should be exciting. Life should be an adventure. There's got to be more out there than all of this. You know, my grandfather, he served in the military, and then he spent the rest of his professional career working the assembly line for GM in the greater Cincinnati area. Um, I'm sure there were moments where he probably didn't want to get up and go to work. Sure, there were moments where he probably thought, yeah, there probably would be some other things I might enjoy doing with my life. I try to think about how my grandfather would relate to statements and quotes like we just read. Is that the way he looked at life? I don't think so. Do I think he sat there and thought, man, there's just adventure out there and I'm just missing it? What's wrong with the grind of life again? Is there something wrong? Like, like, listen, this is a part of it. I mean, I, I think about in the ancient world, like, you probably didn't sit and think about that a lot. Like, my dad was a cobbler. His dad was a cobbler. His dad was a cobbler. I'm going to be a cobbler. Their kid, my, my grandson's going to be a cobbler. My great-grandson will be a cobbler. Does that mean you can't find a fulfilling life? If your life is work hard, take care of your family, be a good husband, raise solid kids? Is that not enough? What does God think? I read this just today. Just today I read a quote from a Christian pastor. He wrote this. He wrote this. Of all the privileges we can have on earth, the most significant is to be raised by a mom and dad who love each other, stay together, teach us the Bible, and take us to church. God, is God honored by that? Listen, if someone's a world traveler and God takes them around the globe and God puts them in all kinds of wild and crazy experiences, good for them. Is that God's ultimate goal for each and every one of us? Is that the good life that God promises us? Is that what we seek and desire above all else? I'm convinced that we live in a culture that has sold us on the need for an adventure, for excitement, to conquer this obstacle of boredom. And I'm just not convinced that it aligns biblical priorities. And by the way, there can still be a lot of excitement in contributing to the kingdom of God. There can be a lot of joy. There can be a lot of contentment. 
I think about just that ordinary life lived exceptionally well. What if all you did was work hard, serve in your church, and raise kids that love Jesus? What would God think of that? Would God say, nah, you really missed it, man. You could have had a lot more. I think God's pretty honored by that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. What does it say? Turn with me there if you would. I haven't made you turn very many places in the Bible so far tonight, so we'll do it a little bit. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Calls us to die to self, right? Calls us to die to self. Not to live for self, but to die for self. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. This is such a great verse. The paradox that Christ paints in this, in this verse. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Look at the verse right before that. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know what taking a cross meant? It meant to die. At this point, when Jesus says these words, the cross has not been glorified, I guess you could say, at this point. Because he hasn't died on it. It hasn't become this symbol of something super sacred and meaningful. It's just a horrible, torturous way to die. Maybe the worst way to die that human beings had come up with up to that point. It's all it is at that point. Jesus hasn't made it a symbol yet of something greater like it is for us today. Whoever wants to follow me, what does he say? I want you to die to yourself. And then you're worthy to come after me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the paradox. And this is what I would say to the person who says, I think happiness is found in feeling good about myself. Happiness is found in the gospel of self-empowerment me having the ability to rise above all of the things that are holding me back from having the life that I want. And third, this focus here on ultimately self-gratification, excitement, adventure, entertainment, all of those things, I would say this. I would say, listen, if you really want to be happy, according to this verse, it means you need to stop trying to be happy. What do I mean by that? You need to stop trying to please yourself, and you need to please God. Not so that it will give you what you want, but simply because you want to please God. Stop trying to be happy. Stop feeding self, and guess what's going to happen? You're ultimately going to find real life. That's the paradox of what Jesus says. Ultimately, the person that ultimately pursues happiness in self, what are they going to find? Emptiness emptiness. 
kind of what he lays out here in this verse. I want to take you to one more passage real quick. The Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. As we think about a focus on self-esteem, self-worth, as we think about self-empowerment, self-help, as we think about self-gratification, does it align with Scripture? What does he say in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes? Blessed, makarios, it's a word that also can be translated happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Hmm. Happy are the people who recognize their spiritual poverty. Happy are the people who recognize what they are not capable of. Happy are the people who come to see they are not enough. Happy is that person. What about the next one? Happy are those who mourn. How does that fit in? What does he mean there, too? I think most agree, and most scholars agree, and I think most of us, as we try to consider what it means there, as we think about the Beatitudes sort of fitting together and flowing together as it relates to how we relate to God and understand how we come to God as human beings, number one, recognizing that we set aside our pride, recognizing that we are not enough in and of ourselves, recognizing that we need someone to do for us in our insufficiency, We also recognize that we are sinful and our hearts are deeply sorrowful. Blessed are those who mourn, who experience deep godly sorrow over their rebellion and their sinfulness. By the way, I forgot to tell this story, but I want to bring this up because it's just interesting to me. This relates back to sort of that point about self-gratification. It's related to excitement, sense of adventure. One of the things I've noticed, I don't do it very much anymore because I don't work with young people as much, but through all my years of working with young people, I ended up doing a whole lot of marriage counseling. And, uh, and it was amazing to me, very millennial, to be honest with you. Uh, millennials, one of the things that sort of marks them is there's sort of this attitude that, like, I should have everything in life in my 20s, right? You know? So, um, kind of the whole... I've got a room full of participation trophies, like I get something just for showing up, like I should be a millionaire in my 20s. Um, And so, which I think there's some real credence to some of that attitude amongst um, some of that generation. But one, one of the things that was striking to me was the kinds of honeymoons they went on. I mean, it made me think about like, what did my parents do? My dad was in law school, and I think he got a long weekend, and they camped out in a car at Roman Nose. My in-laws was about the same. I think they stayed in a room in the back of their house. Meanwhile, and I think many could probably tell similar stories, not everybody, but many. Man, it seemed like every young couple that was 21, 22 years old, I kid you not, Mediterranean cruise, two weeks in a luxury resort (laughs) in the Dominican Republic, Jamaican vacation. Like, I'm like, man, (laughs) 22 years old, 
Again, when we think about this message of you should have all of this. You should have all of this. And if our world creates it, you need it. If a new phone, if a new tablet, if a new thing comes out, if a new big screen TV that's three inches larger than the 172-inch TV that's already in your house comes out, then we need it, right? We've been programmed to think we need the next new thing. Because we deserve that thing. We should have that thing. Always something next, something new, entertain us, to give us some kind of thrill, to give us some sort of excitement. Materialism feeds off of this as well. Our culture certainly likes it. So what do we do with all this? How do we even know if this is a problem for us? Again, like I mentioned earlier, how do we know that we've sort of crossed the line into something that we would say is unhealthy or detrimental in our faith? Because I think on some level, all of us could probably identify some places, myself included, where my heart might be inclined to think in some of those ways, might be pulled in some of those ways. Well, I wrote down a set of questions that I think hopefully can be helpful. And and by the way, I can't. The only person that can really kind of help you know where your heart is on this stuff is you as you sort of seek the Lord and ask God to help you see, maybe if you see or don't see areas in your life where maybe you have been deceived or drawn away to have bought into some things that certainly didn't line up with Scripture. Only God can really, I think, help you discern that. I, I, don't, I, I can't do that for you. But I wrote down four things that I think are helpful in maybe discerning whether these are issues for us or not. So here's number one. Do we focus more on what we think about things than we think about what God thinks? Self-awareness can become an idol. We may find ourselves far more in touch with our own thoughts and feelings than with God's thoughts and feelings. When things arise in life, when decisions need to be made, when issues come up, do we spend our time focused on what we think? Or are we more in touch with what God thinks? So that's a question to chew on. Here's number two. When we read the Bible, are we looking for validation or correction? When we read the Bible, are we looking for validation or correction? Are we looking for the Bible to just make us feel validated about our own beliefs or our own attitudes or our own actions? Or are we coming to Scripture recognizing that in and of myself, my heart is sinful My way is crooked. It does not align with God's desires. And I need to be prepared for correction so that I might walk in the way that God would want me to. When we come to the Bible, do we read it and just find it saying what we want it to say? Or do we read it recognizing that my life needs change? I need God to show me where I need to change. Here's number three. Do we value the act of our obedience over the result of our obedience. What do you mean by that, Josh? When we focus on the result, the obedience becomes a means to an end, right? Desire, something else out there that we want. We can do that with Jesus too. I'll try not to preach because I'm already over. 
Um, <clears throat> the one time I end early, the band doesn't practice. Last week, I told Alex, you lost your chance, man. Um, <clears throat> but the act of obedience versus the result of our obedience. We can do the same thing with Jesus. Jesus can become a means to an end. Jesus just becomes something we try to access to give us all the things we really want. That's not a biblical message. Jesus is not a means to heaven or a means to anything. He is the treasure of heaven. He is the thing we get. We get to know him and love him and enjoy him and serve him and worship him forever. That's what we get. That's the message of the gospel. But the act of obedience versus the result of our obedience. The best example I can think of, and it's the only example I can really think of, and I'll give it to you real quickly, is this. I've heard preachers, and I hope Bill has never said this. Otherwise, this may be the last time I ever speak to you. I don't know. But I don't know if Bill's ever said this or not. But hopefully not. But that being said, I'm sure if Bill said it, it was God-ordained, and it was in the right spirit. I've heard preachers say this in talking about stewardship and money. I've heard them make this challenge to people. Listen, if you'll give and tithe for a month, and you have less at the end of that month than you did before, I'll replace everything you get. You ever heard someone say something similar? I've heard several preachers say something along that lines. Listen, I guarantee you that if you give, God's going to bless you with more than you would have had at the beginning. Now, here's the problem with that. Don't you see that that's still a self-serving message? Give because you're going to result, you're going to end up with more than you thought you were going to have anyways. You with me? It's a self-serving message. What if your giving is just meant to be an act of giving? It's going to be sacrifice on your part, but the joy for you is not in getting more money as a result of your giving, but in simply contributing to the kingdom of God. Your focus is just simply doing what God tells you to do, regardless of what you get out of it. Your goal is just simply to do what God has asked you to do. When we start treating obedience as something that gets us something, we, obedience becomes a means to an end. Now, again, it's kind of like that message of losing your life and finding it, holding on to your life and losing it. That, again, if we're clinging and looking for our own happiness, we don't end up finding it. But if we'll let go of that, what we end up finding is happiness. So, again, this message of trying to pursue obedience simply to obey and finding our joy in obeying as a result, as opposed to simply finding it as a result of our, I'm going to move on. Words didn't want to come out there. Fourth question, do we find joy in the small, ordinary things and not just in the big extraordinary things. I think there's a place for us seeing contentment from the Lord in those small, ordinary things that God would call us to do faithfully and that God works in those things and he moves in those things. And I think it's a good test of where our heart really is and where our contentment is. Let me read you two quotes here at the end, right here. First one is from Charles Spurgeon. You are not mature if you have a high esteem of yourself. He who boasts in himself is but a babe Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Mature Christians know they are less than nothing. The more holy we are, the more we mourn our infirmities, and the humble, the humble one, um, and the humble, humbler is our estate of, our, of ourselves. 
Last one is another pastor who says this, heaven has no place for the erroneous belief that Christ died because we are worth it. Christ's death in our place had nothing to do with our worth, but with the depths of our sin, the demands made by God's justice, and his eternal glory. I think the true gospel confronts the therapeutic gospel as a false gospel. And we need to guard ourselves from believing that our happiness is ultimately found in our self-worth and in our self-empowerment and in our self-gratification. All of those share one similar word, right? Self. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would use these things just to draw us closer to you, draw us closer to the truth, deepen our love for Christ, and to um, strengthen our devotion to him and to his kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.